Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, get yourself some onions and bread because it's SST 227, the Brian Ritchie Sunraw Man from Outer Space EP. We've had Brian Ritchie on a number of times before, actually, and we've got to answer the question in this episode. Why does this EP exist? I think we've got to answer that question. I think I know the answer, but looking forward to discussing that with you. But still a total mind blower for me, Brent. We've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got John Corbett on the show. So cool to have John on. For me, several episodes ago, I was spieling about one of John's books. And I was saying, oh, dude, you got to read this book. And then all of a sudden, boom, Brent has got John on the show uh, with an interview because, of course, this is a Sun Ra EP and John is an authority on Sun Ra. And man, is it, yeah, is it ever a cool interview? And there, there's just so many um, SS tree items in the interview as well. Just awesome. Yeah, yeah. Before we do that, Brent, why don't you spiel it? Okay. Total tie-in with this week's episode, Ryan. A documentary I've mentioned a few times and that I've been dying to see uh, it's up for streaming on the Criterion Channel website, mm-hmm. uh, and that's Tom Sergel's film, Fire Music, The Story of Free Jazz. Ah. It opens right off the bat with a truly unhinged Sun Ra performance. <laughs> uh, Eric Dolphy, Cecil Taylor, Ornette Coleman, of course, um, Charlie Hayden, Prince Lahey, Sonny Simmons, obviously John Coltrane. It shows that evolution coming out of bebop into what became known as free jazz and Mm. kind of the scene coalescing in New York. It goes into the importance of Albert Eiler. Yeah. Uh, uh, Like most innovators, these guys got mistreated and disrespected sometimes by their own idols in like kind of the old guard of jazz. Many died young from disease, overdoses, suicide, often destitute, uh, and then the second part focuses on Chicago and St. Louis with people like Anthony Braxton, the Art Institute of Chicago, Sam Rivers. Then they go overseas to Europe where it got really radical. Uh, yeah. Musicians like Peter Brotzman. Lots of new interviews done in the in the present day with, with some of these people. Um, lots of archival interviews and footage. The whole th- thing is really well done and a pretty crucial documentary on a really important and some would say overlooked or forgotten movement not just in jazz but in music history period Mm. another excellent document of avant-garde music that i i want to mention is a book i just finished it's called the history of bones a memoir by john lurie john was the leader and primary writer for new york avant-garde jazz group the lounge lizards if you're even remotely interested in that downtown new york scene in the 80s Uh, This book is the one for you. For starters, he's super sarcastic and hilarious. Totally uncompromising in his art. He just led an incredible life. It's a warts and all look at his life. Years battling, you know, drug addiction. The struggles he faced trying to have a career in music without sacrificing his integrity. He's an excellent writer. Uh, Talks a lot about his rocky friendship with Jean-Michel Basquette. His many conflicts with filmmaker Jim Jarmusch, he co-wrote or starred uh, starred in lots of Jim's movies like Stranger Than Paradise, 
uh, along with former Sonic Youth drummer Richard Edson, uh, the movie Down by Law. Down by Law, man. Yep. Awesome. Yep. With Roberto Benigni and Tom Waits. Yep. He talks a lot about that and talks a lot about Tom Waits in the book, Ryan. Um, he just did the soundtrack to a lot of those movies. Uh, he's played with so many legendary musicians. Uh, he's played with Tom Waits. Uh, Mark Rabot was in his band for many years, and he talks about him a lot. The list is just endless. Also played with Tom for years. So this scene has come up a ton of times on the show as well, too, right? When we've had those uh, releases by members of the New York scene. So this is a total SS Tree tie-in as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just a great book. He's he's a, just an amazing storyteller. Even if you're not into any of that, the stuff I just mentioned, I anybody would enjoy this book. Yeah. Yeah. I just rewatched one of my favorite Jim Jarmusch movies, A Night on Earth. You ever seen that one? Yep. Yeah, Love that'd be that. a good one to watch this time of year for Halloween. Oh man, that is that is a perfect movie. That's yeah. a perfect movie. Just amazing. Yeah, I've only seen it the one time when it first came out. I should watch it again. And Ryan, uh, speaking of Jim, uh, while you're on the Criterion Collection streaming site, you can and should watch all of those movies because they're all yeah. on there. Yeah, and while you're also on there, um, you can watch. Uh, I watch. Here's one for for Halloween that I've always wanted to see this movie because I have the soundtrack. It's on like Enigma or whatever. I was a teenage zombie. The f- oh, it's got the flesh eaters on the soundtrack. Oh no way! Yeah, the movie's terrible. It's like uh, <laughs> it's like a trauma movie or something, you know? Like, oh, man. but so good, so bad that it's good. You know, yeah. And speaking then, of the speaking of the flesh eaters, did you get Christie's new book yet? Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, me me too. I can't wait to dive into that one. Yeah, except it's not the flesh eaters on that movie soundtrack. I misspoke. It's the flesh tones. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, hey, Chris Christie plug. Yeah. Why Why not? Yeah. Well, I'm holding off on that one. I'm I got to spiel about it after I read it. Okay. Uh, you can also watch on that Criterion channel the classic Border Radio movie which features Chris D, Dave Alvin, John Doe, Texacala Jones, Iris Berry, Julie Christensen, Green on Red. I, I've i seen that movie a few times, but I've never watched the commentary track. There's a couple different ones with a, you know, a few different people, but I watched the, the one that has uh, John Doe, Dave Alvin, and Chris D together doing a commentary. Cool. Yeah, it's pretty good. They just like make fun of the movie and themselves and point out all the, the, the cameos and stuff like people that are in it, like, uh, you know, uh, Robin Jameson and people like that. Like from the LA scene. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Uh, real quick, Ryan, um, I wanted to give this big time podcast shout out. I'm sure everyone has seen this by now, but after threatening to do it for years, Jello Biafra has finally started a podcast jello biafra's renegade roundtable not sure how often he's planning on putting these these episodes out hopefully there's more by the time you're hearing this but the first one is out it's a two-hour interview with al jorgensen actually i wouldn't maybe describe it as an interview it's it's more like a conversation anyone who's ever heard jello get interviewed knows the man can talk the balls off a rhinosaurus (laughs) a rhinosaurus or or a rhinoceros well, I uh, rhinosaurus. <laughs> from the from the Triassic period. I don't know. <laughs> That's a Primus reference, man. Okay. That's how they say it. 
Okay. Uh, but Al manages to get some stuff in in this interview too. Super smart guy, of course. They talk they talk about all kinds of early San Francisco and Chicago punk rock, including Joseph Pope and Angst, who Jello mentions a few times. No way. Yeah. Cool. Al talks, of course. You know, Naked Ray Gun, Ray Gun Strike Under, Wax Tracks. They talk about meeting and forming Lard. Of course, at least half the episode is kind of the state of U.S. politics and the upcoming midterms, but I'm into all of that, so, you know, bring it on. Uh, they again mention the possibility of a new Lard album, which would no doubt be totally epic. Yeah. Jello mentioned some future guests, and among the ones I'm especially interested in, Mojo Nixon is going to be on the show. Oh, yeah. Do you know who Mojo Nixon is? Uh, if you don't, your store needs some fixing. Thank you. Uh <laughs> Uh, you know, I love Mojo Nixon, man, and you never hear from him. So, uh, Greg Pal- Palast is coming on. So, you know, amazing investigative journalist with spoken word releases on alternative tentacles. So that'll be a good one. And Ryan, Mike Watt is coming on. Like, oh my God. I can't wait to hear those two try and have a conversation. Well, Jello was on the Watt from Pedro show. Have you ever heard oh, that right, one? Right, right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I could listen to Jello talk all day, so I hope he keeps doing me too. doing this, and I hope he he uh, keeps his "What Would Jello Do" YouTube series going too, because I never miss those. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's all I have, Ryan. What do you have this week? Oh, cool. So my spiel is a tie-in with this interview as well. Good, Un- unexpectedly, but then intentionally. So during the interview, and and folks will hear this with John. We'll talk a bit more about this once we get into the history lessons. You asked John about how he got into avant-garde music. In fact, I think you say, what was your gateway drug into avant-garde music? And he says it was British post-punk. Yeah. Right? So my spiel is about British post-punk, also a retroactive tie-in to your Mekons spiel Ah. from a few weeks ago, where you talked about how you were kind of Mekons adjacent. Yeah. And I talked about how I was a little Mekons adjacent via Gang of Four, kind of, yep. mem- member. I do member, yeah. I'm more okay. Waco Brothers, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're Mekons adjacent, I'm Mekons adjacent. Anyway, and I finally watched your good recommend, that documentary on the Mekons, Revenge of the Mekons. It's good, eh? Yeah, it's good. It's a great documentary. I don't think I'm ever going to become a huge Mekons fan, but I do like those early records i think it'll take a few more listens to get more into the later mecons i know i know some of their music like that song millionaire my uh, my buddy's band covers that track that's a cool song um what, but yeah, any- like they got more closer to the you know i was gonna say closer to the waco brothers but that's not true but they got more rootsy as time went on folky and rootsy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and i mean i appreciate that but it's not my wheelhouse it's not what i'm drawn to i'm drawn to more the earlier mekon stuff so i decided to finally read a book that i had on my shelf after your spiel about the mekons but when i started this book i had no idea that john corbett was going to be a guest on the show and i actually finished this book a couple of days before i heard the interview with john okay this is all this is what frank zappa would call conceptual continuity brand that's right. what this that's what this is conceptual continuity okay so john starts off the interview with post-punk and the book i read was this one red set a history of gang of four by jim dooley 
This is out on Repeater Books. It was put out in 2017, so it only misses one Gang of Four record. In fact, no, 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 it uh, it misses one full-length Gang of Four record, and and also that EP that they put on with Ivanka Trump on the cover. Hmm. Do you ever see that one? No. <laughs> You should see that one. Okay. Uh, it's it's called Complicit. In this book, Red Set, and it's a great book by Jim Dooley, by the way, it just goes so deep into every one of the records. It doesn't, like, you know, weight it more so on the early days of Gang of Four. It goes deep on all of it. And That's Jim, good. it does have some academic co- commentary in there about, you know, philosophers, artists, theorists, because, again, we're going back when you're, talking about Gang of Four and the Mekons, you're going back to university in Leeds, right? This is where they all meet. Okay. Um, in this book, though, he discusses at length this label called Fast Product. Do you know that Fast Product label? Mm, yep, but you're going to have to remind me. Yeah, well, this is where I went for this week's spiel. I did a deep dive on Fast Product. And it's an indie label from Edinburgh, so Scotland, right? Started in December of 77, formed by Bob Last, Hilary Morrison, and Tim Pierce. The reason you know this label, Fast Product, is because it's in that Mekons documentary. This is the label that released that first Mekon 7-inch, Never Been in a Riot. And in Dooley's book, there's a great discussion about how ironic it was that this is the single that was put out first on Fast Product before the Gang of Four single that was put out on Fast Products since the Mekons weren't even trying to be a band. They basically started by using the Gang of Four's instruments at art school. But Fast Product was just a pure artist, indie label, late 70s, Edinburgh, Scotland, and just amazing post-punk that I'd never really gotten into deeply. They also put out singles by this band called 2.3 or 2-3, not exactly sure how to say that but they've actually reformed like 40 years later you can buy two new albums by 2.3 but also releases by scars and human league on fast product their last release fast product 12 speaking of jello was the uk release of the dead kennedys california uber alice So that's Fast Product 12, the last Fast Product. The label lasted for two years. But in this scene, right, in Scotland, there's all these other bands. And they also put out some great comps. They put out the Fast Product comp from 79. It collects all those early singles, Mekons, uh, Gang of Four, Scars. And then they also put out this series of comps, the Earcom series. And Earcom is like ear comics or ear commercials. So Earcom 1 has got these amazing bands that I've never really dug into before, like the Prats, Blank Students, the Flowers. And it came with a flesh-colored cardboard 7-inch as a bonus. They could this just is, say a pink. Nope, flesh-colored. And so like this, I'm, I'm just kind of giving you a sense of like this was a real artist's indie label. Earcom 2 had Joy Division Tuesdays and this band, I don't know how to pronounce this name. I think it's called Bastchaks. Earcom 3 is a triple seven inch with these bands, No Mercy, The Stupid Babies, and actually has two songs by the middle class on it. Two songs off their first single on there. Many of these tracks are collected on the 1993 comp CD, Fast Product, Rigor, Discipline, and Disgust. Fast Product also put out zines, 
And here's the best discovery as I was digging into Fast Product in addition to the music. The music is great, but I also discovered a 2015 documentary for free on YouTube right now called Big Gold Dream. And it's just amazing. And they're talking about how, like, in 1977, they were challenging the status quo in Edinburgh. And you know what the status quo was for them? It was kind of like the new thing. It was punk. As soon as they saw punk, they said, we're going to do something different. Right. Like, right off the bat. So, post-punk, right? And Fast Product really paved the way for factory records, rough trade. In fact, Bob Last in the documentary calls, and I mentioned, you know, Fast Product had 12 releases, records and zines, one through 12. He says that uh, Fast Product number 13 is actually factory records. He's just kind of joking about how that label kind of laid all the track for factory records. And then there's also a B-side to this documentary. There's a B-side to Big Gold Dream because... Fast Product also paved the way for postcard records from Glasgow. And here you can do another deep dive into UK, but in particular Scottish post-punk. It's called The Glasgow School. You really got to check that one out. It goes into all sorts of other bands from that era like Orange Juice, Joseph K. So I kind of was reading this Gang of Four book because you mentioned the Mekons. And then we've got uh, John on who was really inspired by the UK post-punk, British post-punk. And I got really deep into it this week, in particular watching three hours of free Scottish post-punk documentaries on YouTube that are just amazing. And there's so much more to dig into. All these bands that I had, you know, heard about, but never really dug into. So this book, Red Set, A History of Gang of Four, awesome. The two documentaries, Big Gold Dream and The Glasgow School, awesome. The two labels, Fast Product, Postcard Records, awesome. Really got to check this out. And it also reminded me of a book that I mentioned way, way back. This one here, A Scene in Between by Sam Nee. Tripping through the fashions of UK indie music, 1980 to 1988. And there are bands that I've mentioned in this, like Orange Juice. But just fascinating to see how, like, the instant that punk rock came to Edinburgh, like on the White Riot tour, they immediately said they wanted to do something different than that. And it just spawned all this amazing music. Um, So definitely check all that out. Yeah. uh, You know what? I, I could be wrong about this, Ryan, but I'm pretty sure Cherry Red Records, who does these, you know, pretty cool box sets that are usually fairly reasonably priced has one called break gold dream that kind of covers a lot of that you know about it i don't know about that one no but now i but now i will so it must be to coincide with the documentary i mean i just saw both of these documentaries the last few days yeah i'm not sure if it if it's a tie-in or or what it is but i know i've seen it before like the box yeah the box set yeah yeah cool man lots to dive into there Oh, just dozens of bands. Where have they been all my life? Like Scars from Scotland. Just discovered them. Triple CD out there. Get it. Yeah, people better get their pens out for this episode, man, because that's just the tip of the iceberg for, like, recommends, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Let's get into this episode. Yeah, put on your Cuban heels. (laughs) History lesson, part one. (laughs) All right, man, do you want a Richie rundown to start us off? Please. All right, so... Like I said, we've had Brian Ritchie 
releases on the show before. We had episode 141, The Blend, with Brian Ritchie as a guest. Go back and check that one out. 186, The Nuclear War, 12-inch with John Cruth, and also 187, Atom Krieg with John Cruth. How do you pronounce that one, Brent? <laughs> I think you 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 I think you you kind of hit it there. I think we're good. Okay, I seem to recall last time you skew calling a DOS Autumn Creek, but and then episode two oh two, Sonic Temple and the Court of Babylon with Pete Balstrieri. Yeah. And now and now don't forget as well, we recently had Brian Ritchie on with episode two twenty three, the Kirk Kelly Go Man Go episode where Kirk Kelly was on, but of course Brian Ritchie produced that record. So we've got a Brian Ritchie tie in with a recent Kirk Kelly episode as well. Yeah. Hey, speaking of kick-ass writers that we've had on the show, don't forget to check out John Cruth's books. And uh, he has a new book coming out in March 2023 called Lunacy, The Curious Phenomenon of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, 50 Years On. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hey, uh, on the subject of Richie recaps here, I just did a very short piece because, you know, if you listen to those interviews with Brian and, and John and Peter, like we cover... We cover this era off, I would say, pretty well. Uh, but Brian Ritchie is, of course, the bassist in The Violent Femmes, but also played as a guest on many albums uh, on just about every instrument ever invented. <laughs> He's played in a number of bands and, and released more solo records after his time on SST. I would recommend Brian's 1990 solo album, I See a Noise, uh, if you want to check out more. Uh, the 2008 album, Villa Inferno, that he made with Italian band Zen Circus. His surf band with members of Midnight Oil called The Break. His band with members of uh, The Beasts of Bourbon called The Green Mist. And of course, Any and All Violent Femmes, who are on the road right now. The tracks from this album uh, were recorded by David Vartanian at DV's Perversion Room in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was released as a single and on mini-CD. Two of the songs are from the Sonic Temple album, and one is exclusive to this release. So we'll expand on that uh, when we get to History Lesson Part 2. The band is Brian on vocals, guitar, and bass. John Cruth on banshee mandolin and vocals. Peter Belstrieri on sax and vocals. And Christian Loss, drums, congas, and marimba. No shakahoochie, eh? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's sw switch gears here, Ryan, and, and tee up this, this week's guest. Yes, please. As I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, um, you brought John Corbett up a few weeks back in relation to his book, Vinyl Freak, Ooh. Love Letters to a Dying Medium. And I, I started digging into John's work a little deeper, and there, there is a lot to dive into. Uh, as a fellow music obsessive, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit he wasn't on my radar, but Wow, what a body of work. Yeah. John is a Chicago-based writer, musician, radio host, teacher, record producer, concert promoter, and gallery owner. The bulk of, of his writing is centered around free jazz, free improvisation, and avant-garde music. He's written many books. Extended Play, Sounding Off, From John Cage to Dr. Funkenstein. Microgroove, Forays into Other Music. Pick Up the Pieces, Excursions into 70s Music, and a bunch more. A few of which we touch on in the interview. Some of these are collections of articles and essays. He's a prolific writer and has written extensively for Downbeat Magazine, The Wire, too many others to list. 
He's currently a co-owner of an art gallery called Corbett versus Dempsey. There's virtually no aspect of media in and around the avant-garde John hasn't been involved in. Uh, but he can tell it better than than I can, so let's throw to John. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by John Corbett. John, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure to be here. All right, so before we get into some Sunraw discussion, I want to I want to learn a little bit more about you. You wear, I would say, many hats, but I think you're you're mainly known as kind of a champion of, of free jazz and avant-garde music. What was kind of your your gateway drug into the avant-garde? Well, I think my my gateway uh, drug was probably punk rock. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was about 16 in the 16, 17, 18 in the late, uh, late seventies, um, got pretty interested in, um, in British post-punk, uh, especially and, uh, but also American, uh, uh, punk and, DIY and independent music. And so that, and, you know, specifically, I would say there's a record by the pop group called We Are All Prostitutes. And it has a uh, cello part by a guy named Tristan Hansinger. And that was the first freely improvised music I ever heard. He plays this completely crazy cello part over, especially the beginning of that track. And I was like, what is that? I couldn't even really identify the instrument. Um, and I, from there kind of by association, got myself into all sorts of other kinds of, uh, music, Derek Bailey and, um, and Peter Brotzman and, uh, and the, and the associated music in the United States, the AACM association for the advancement of creative music, musicians, mm-hmm. um, art ensemble of Chicago, stuff like that. Uh, being you're from Chicago originally. I am originally, yeah. Yeah, so being from there, I mean, Chicago has a rich history as well of, of uh, avant-garde, avant-garde music. Do you think, you know, growing up in in Chicago and having the Sun Ra, you know, some hometown mystique, do you think that was a factor? Um, possibly, possibly in some really uh, deep way, but I, we moved away when I was when I was young, and it was a place that I came back to all the time, so I feel very connected to the um, city spiritually, uh, like emotionally, and you know, the kind of, a lot of the cliches about Chicago, that it's gritty, and um, and the kind of working classness of it, and it's being one of the um, most racially divided, but also most racially kind of it, equal black white um in terms of numbers um those things have been there in my experience uh, all along and i think they do you know kind of understanding what the south side and west side meant uh growing up was a uh, um in terms of like the richness of that culture so not thinking about it like the jim croce song of the baddest part of town but instead thinking about it like in terms of like that is a really rich cultural repository. That's how I grew up understanding and thinking about the relationship between, you know, the city of Chicago and its African-American neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of Derek Bailey, so we've had Henry Kaiser on the show, and I know he was an influence on Henry's playing, and I can can definitely hear uh, some Derek Bailey influence in your guitar playing as well. Is that fair to say? (laughs) That is absolutely true. Yeah, I was, I was 
an, an avid guitar player and certainly very interested in the way that Derek um, approached the instrument. But uh, there's a there are a lot of different people who have their own inflections, um, you know, as spiky guitar players. Um, and I around 2005, I stopped playing. I, I just didn't have time to um, put it on the instrument the way that I really felt like I I needed to. So um, uh, that was a hat I took off at that moment. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, it tends to happen sometimes. With <laughs> there's only 24 hours in a day, so <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Uh, what sparked your interest in writing about music, and when did you first start to do that? I started doing that at the end of my experience in college. Um, so that would be in like 85, 86. And I was really interested. I, I started out um, interviewing musicians um, and I was interested in the oral history aspect of it. I in interviewed Sun Ra in 1986 for the first of four times and um, interviewed some blues musicians and a whole bunch of jazz musicians who I was interested in. And that spun into wanting to write critically about it as well. And I, I kind of also felt like being on all sides, as many different sides of the equation as possible, being someone who plays the music, because that tells you something about doing it that you can't know from writing about the music, but writing about it allows you to sort of um, uh, understand it in a different way, in a slightly more structural way. And then producing the music. So I spent a lot of time producing concerts. That was a really um, important part of my life for a long time, starting in college. Mm. And that made me understand the business side of it and the, um, and the organizational side of it uh, for live music in a, in a whole different way. So writing was part of that and continues to be an important part of it because it allows me to reflect on... Um, uh, things at a different pace from the production or the performance side of it. What types of shows would you have been promoting? Anything uh, stand out as like uh, something that, you know, was, you know, one of your huge successes? Well, I mean, I think um, as an early success, you know, I brought uh, Peter Brotsman and Han Benink to uh, Brown University in 1985 uh, for a performance that was the first time they played there. It was one of the first tours that, that, that they did in the United States. Um, and that was a, that was an important early one. And then certainly the capper in a way was, uh, I was the artistic director of the Berlin jazz festival in 2002. And that was a, uh, that was a monstrous um, excitement for me. When you're first starting to write about free jazz or avant-garde music, you know, obviously this is way pre-internet. Did you find that a lot of that stuff was under-documented at that time? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it, it was, it's a completely different world now with the, with the internet and with the social media and the kind of the way that information spreads. I mean, a good example of that would be like, I went to high school and junior high in Iowa city, Iowa. It's a college town. So it's a fairly culturally literate place, but I, you know, like I was really interested, as I mentioned in British, um, 
post post punk, so on. And and I wanted to be in touch with what was going on there. The only way I could do that was buying two week old NMEs, New Musical Express, and and uh, and Melody Makers, which were for sale at a um, at a store there that kind of specialized in that stuff. But they couldn't get them for two weeks. So I was. I was into it that much, but I was always two weeks off. And I, I think there are, you know, there were kids who were interested in, let's say weird music in far flung places. Um, let's say like Arkhangelsk, you know, um, Siberia. Um, and they were reliant on underground networks to get them information uh, records, anything written, books, articles, you know, whatever. It was, it took a lot of effort to kind of stay tuned, stay into that stuff. And I think that was, that made the, the quality of, that is the character of being interested in that music at that time, quite different from what it is now. Yep. (laughs) I, I completely agree. I mean, growing up in small town Canada, even, you know, later on in the late, later eighties was, it was a challenge for sure. And, you know, if you didn't know somebody who, who, uh, was, you know, was, was your information source, it was, it, it's funny to look back now, you know, through today's lens and, and think about the, the effort that you had to put in, but it, I think in a way it made it more rewarding as well. Yeah, I mean, it was it was always extremely exciting to to discover something new, and then you had to use some quasi private eye type uh, um, tools to kind of figure out like how to build a network from that one thing. So you'd go by record label, for instance, was one that was for me, the, you know, the most obvious one was like, let's figure out whether things are on this label. Cause I like something on this label. Maybe I'll like other things, but then who else has this person played with, you know, who, what, who are the designers associated with this? Who else has written, you know, somebody's written about this. What else have they written about? So you're networking, um, in every way you possibly can to figure out what the um, kind of what the web of associations is. Um, And that was fun. I mean, I I found that extremely exciting. It's still there. I mean, it's still something that you're trying to figure out how, you know, I think, you know, it's still not absolutely obvious how all this stuff fits together. You've got to, you got to do some work. And there's a lot about it too, that is distorted by the ubiquity of that information. So there's a lot about it that um, I feel like you you can get very different information if you, first of all, try to do anything um, primary source. So like if you're interested in music and it's accessible in any way, getting to talk to the musicians, getting to talk to the people who produce the music uh, is going to potentially give you all sorts of information that you will still not find anywhere on the internet or in podcasts even, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there's a lot and there are still hardly any podcasts that deal with, for instance, uh, freely improvised music or the most radical of experimental music. There, there are some, but not many. And uh, so it's interesting to me 
to think like you still can go in and do primary, like unique primary, primary information, uh, research on, on, on folks like Derek Bailey, um, or Cecil Taylor even, uh, in a way that is very open. That was appealing to me, the openness of it, the accessibility of it and the rigor that you could bring to it. Because at the time that I was starting to write about it, for instance, there was very little documentation of things like the relationship between the Japanese, you know, music scene and the American music scene or the European music scene and the American music scene. And I was really interested in those kinds of vectors. So uh, let's, let's get into some talk about Sun Ra. I, I will admit I have a, you know, a cursory knowledge of, of his life and, and where do you think he sits like in a, you know, from a historical perspective in regards to avant-garde and jazz or just popular music more generally? Well, it's interesting. I think he's, his, the, the place that he sits has changed a lot in the last 10 years. In a way, because he's been, because of the ascendance of the idea of Afrofuturism and his sort of post-facto insertion as an architect of um, Afrofuturism. And uh, I do think he was an architect of Afrofuturism, but he never used that term. That term did not exist while he was alive. Um, It's important to remember that that's something, that's a construction that has come later. Um, But that's put him in an important place in relationship, not only to music, but into all a broad array of art practices. Um, and even, and poetry and philosophy and, um, and social activism. Um, if you understand him, if you're trying to understand his role now, you kind of have to open it up, broaden it from, from music. Within the music world, he has also um, become uh, a, a, a pretty much household name. I mean, you know, again, in the last 10, 15 years, he's gone from being someone who it was reasonable for a writer doing a cover story on him on a magazine to say genius or lunatic, right? As if this was some sort of a... Um, kind of as if he was really a total outsider. He's not an outsider now. He's his, you know, his, the brilliant idea of making as many records as he did, for instance, for, and releasing them himself, in addition to making them for all sorts of other labels, you know, assured him of the fact that later, if what, has come to pass, might come to pass, there would be work there to back, to back it up. Now we can go to all of this music and, you know, and it's there as evidence of the power of his, um, musical inventiveness. Yeah. I feel like when people say they're influenced by Sun Ra, they're not necessarily always speaking musically. Right. Yeah. No, not, no, for sure. Yeah. I don't think he considered himself like a philosopher uh, per se, uh, but can you kind of explain his, his worldview? Is that, is that even possible? Yeah, he, actually was, <laughs> he was actually against the 
the idea of being called a philosopher because you said um, philosophers deal with conjecture and I'm dealing with equations. And that's a totally different thing. So I think you would have wanted to be thought more of, let's say, as a kind of, you know, social mathematician as opposed to being a philosopher, as opposed, as opposed to being someone who's um, asking questions that uh, can't be answered. He's, you know, he's answering his own questions. And uh, so Ra's, Ra's perspective... I mean, again, it shifts over the course of his, you know, 80 years on this planet uh, pretty dramatically. In the early years, he was, um, as the his work as a musician was beginning to really take shape and beginning to formulate as something um, unique to him, he was also writing a lot um, about black culture and about um, uh, American, the American social system and its relationship to, um, African-Americans. Um, and he was a radical thinker in that period. This is a period of probably 1953, 54, 55. So, you know, in advance of the, um, popularly understood, uh, uh, civil rights movement, um, he was, writing and distributing uh, broadsides on the south side of Chicago, often in Washington, Washington Park, um, that were aimed at enlightening um, the audience that they would find. And they were, that was something that was not uncommon. There were like the Nation of Islam, for instance, was doing that. There were various Christian um, preachers who were doing that. And so he was sort of, as part of a discourse on the South Side, making arguments about, for instance, the fact that it was a, a, a travesty that um, black people in America have no, so, no standing amongst the nations of the world. That was a very important early stance for him. We should have standing. We are denied a standing uh, among nations of the world. So that, in a way, was to position him as a black nationalist. But he really ultimately doesn't become a black nationalist. He becomes a kind of, um, uh, you could say, kind of an extraterrestrial separatist. I mean, he later argues as space becomes part of his um, his worldview and the the way that he presents himself in performance and the um, philosophy, the underlying kind of, let's say, philosophical perspectives that he had or intellectual perspectives, wrote like use the uh, the finitude of terrestrialism as a pushing against point. So then he starts to really talk about why are we limiting ourselves to think about um, a kind of earth-centric view, we should be thinking much more. Um, and why do we think about, for instance, the universe? We shouldn't think about the universe. We should think about the omniverse because the omniverse is the sum total of all of the possible and impossible universes. The universe is singular. The omniverse is all-inclusive. And so, you know, those are just parts of his his world philosophy. He was, 
he was very engaged starting in the um, in the ni- late 1950s in um, talking about space, talking about the idea of leaving planet Earth, um, and talking about um, talking about it specifically within a context that was uh, um, African American. So. There's one other aspect that I think is extremely important, which is that, you know, he's often thought of as a free jazz musician. He really disliked the term free um, and the, the, the concepts around freedom as a, he said he thought that they were extremely limiting and that, as he put it, uh, African-Americans have been weaned on the notion of freedom and there's no such thing as freedom in the universe. And we are certainly not free or more free for having been weaned on this concept. So he preferred the terms, the twin terms, discipline and precision. And so um, if you think about it, you know, he was also somebody who was a huge innovator in terms of what we now think of as being free improvised music or free form jazz. But he thought about that not as freedom to do something, but he thought about it as the discipline to do something. So he wanted to emphasize that, you know, when you're playing improvised music, it's not necessarily that you're relishing the fact that you can do anything you want. It's that you have a duty to do something within that context in a very particular way. It's the, the hard part of it is you have to spend basically a lifetime figuring out what that is. And that's the discipline. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it would be fair to say, you know, like especially American hardcore uh, gets a lot of credit for DIY culture, but I think Sun Ra was, was doing that stuff 20 years before or I mean, you tell me, but I mean, like, I feel like he was definitely, uh, you know, a big part of, of the do it yourself aesthetic. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, even just thinking about the limited ecosphere of Chicago, there were two, there were three musicians, uh, uh, three musical figures in the same period who were exploring, um, uh, self-production. And, and those three musicians were Harry Parch, uh, the, the, the great uh, instrument inventor and composer. And he had a record label called Gate Five. A guy named Tommy Madman Jones, who was a tenor saxophone player, kind of in a, an R&B mode, but was known to Sun Ra and his manager, Alton Abraham. And he had a record label called Eminem, which stood for Mad and Man. And then Sun Ra and Alton Abraham, who working together, started a record label called El Saturn or Saturn Records. That's that's three of probably five or so record labels that were belonged to the musicians whose records were appearing on them uh, in the 1950s. Wow. And so that anticipates, you know, what we think of as the the birth of DIY by, you know, as you say, roughly 20 years. Uh, there are examples along the way, but they're, um, you know, they're idiosyncratic 
examples, there was something going on in Chicago and there was information being passed around where these folks were figuring out, for instance, how to have RCA, one of the big record labels, how to use them to master and and then produce small quantities of records. So Sun Ra and Alton Abraham figured out a way to make as few as 25 records in a batch so that, wow. you know, they didn't have to make a thousand. They didn't have to make 2000. They could make so few that they could sell them all at a gig. And, you know, that's even now very difficult to mm-hmm. imagine being able to do that. Um, pioneering that kind of uh, stuff, you know, so far ahead of, um, you, you know, what we think of as being like the, the, uh, independent record production world of the 1970s, um, is, is an amazing feat. And yes, they are, they are pioneers. Sun Ra and L Saturn records. That's one of the pioneering pre-punk DIY inspirations. So, I mean, he has such a lengthy career and he was so prolific. Is it like, this might be a difficult question for you, but is it possible to kind of explain his musical evolution? Um, not in any comprehensive way, but I can put some mileposts in it. Um, I think the very early years, which would, you know, he moved to Chicago in 1946. He left Chicago in 1961. Let's say for the duration of those years, he was making, um, he was both at the early part of that. He was also arranging for other musicians, um, Fletcher Henderson, Horace Henderson, um, uh, Red Saunders, big bands, basically. Um, and, learning a lot in that context. And then in the mid 1950s, he started his own band that would eventually be called the uh, Sun Ra Orchestra with an A. And that, um, that ensemble, he initially wanted to be a rehearsal band. Uh, His, he told his manager, Alton Abraham, that he wanted to keep a rehearsal band for 10 years before, so that they could be disciplined enough to take the music public and intelligently his manager convinced him that that was not realistic. You would not be able to keep musicians together for 10 years without any kind of compensation. Um, so, uh, so that band sort of evolved and what it evolved into while they were here in Chicago was a, a really interesting hybrid of a kind of, um, functioning, commercial um big band jazz big band um playing music that ranged from kind of bop post-bop swing and then also uh arrangements that were very strange that were very experimental um and for me that makes that music extremely interesting um because it's kind of playing on the edge of all sorts of standards and codes that we completely understand from Ellington and Basie and, um, and other, uh, well-known examples, but really kind of twisting them 
and putting interesting twists on them. I mean, among which were the fact that he was from a very early point interested in electronics. Mm -hmm. And so he was already incorporating the use of electronic instruments into the music, the kind of much more, you could say, straight ahead oriented music that he was playing when he was in Chicago. He moves in 1961 to New York and that's the beginning of a much more highly, um, well, what he called a sub underground. So underground it's below the underground, uh, which I think he, he actually made a record called sub underground, which I always thought maybe was a reference to the Charles Mingus beneath the underdog, uh, which was his uh, autobiography. So he, and they were, that was a period also in the, in the sixties of, um, very little work for them, very little commercial work. Um, it's probably the, the, the moment when the orchestra was, the, was, um, uh, the most tenuous in terms of its ability to continue. However, it was also the moment when a dream he'd had in Chicago was able to be realized. And that was that they could live communally. So they began living together in New York and then um, realized that completely when in the later in the 1960s, they moved decisively to Philadelphia and they settled in Philadelphia in a big row house in Germantown that, um, that the orchestra mem members of the orchestra continue to live in today. And that was important because Ra really wanted to be able to call rehearsals um, in the middle of the night, for instance, like when he had any inspiration. So at four o'clock in the morning, he'd get an idea and he'd just wake everybody up and they'd go into the rehearsal room and play. So that musically you move from the Chicago period, which is more in an understandable conventional, um, bop big band setting into something that's really experimental, much more open, um, much more dissonant, more reliant on um, unusual instrumentations, uh, using a lot of electronics. So records like uh, Atlantis, um, other planes of there. These are records that are recorded in the 1960s in, um, in New York. And then when he moves at the, uh, you know, later in the career, which ends when he dies in 1993, while he's in Philadelphia, you know, he manages to continue to have this big band, sometimes 30 piece band as a touring entity at a period when nobody's doing that. Mm -hmm. Nobody is keeping a touring big band together at that point. Uh, uh, it's almost nobody. Um, it's, it's unrealistically expensive. It's um, hard to keep people focused. It's, so he managed to do that. And at the point that he becomes best known for being the guy who has the wild drum, drum-centric, electronic, improvising, dissonant orchestra, he starts going back to early jazz and playing Fletcher Henderson and Duke Ellington um, arrangements of these early jazz charts and, and even playing music associated with Walt Disney and, um, 
and mixing those in to a kind of um, very pageant-oriented performance um, uh, regimen where there were a lot of costumes and uh, all sorts of light show. You know, he was even in the in the 19th, mid 1960s he was innovating with light shows and performance components that would better be known for being part of psychedelic rock he was uh, ahead of the curve on that um and at that point you know he basically starts to screw with um the supposed trajectory of jazz moving from a more um let's say composed more uh, arranged thing toward freedom and instead moves back as one of the emissaries of the most wild music. He then moves back and starts playing these incredibly beautiful arrangements of um, classic music from the 1920s and thirties. It must've been a real struggle for him to keep that, keep that going especially i would say maybe in the 80s was it seems like it would have been harder do you know like did he work in his life like work a job uh not not in not in the period after he started the band Mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. no i mean he was they were frugal they had a they they had their rent covered um once they moved you know in the starting in about 67 um and they were thrifty and inventive and figured out ways to do it. I mean, they had a grocery store downstairs in there, uh, in, in Germantown, they had, you know, they did all sorts of stuff, but he kept them on the road. I mean, he kept them playing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was fortunate to see them play a lot of times starting in about 1985 or six. And, um, and you know, that's so for a almost 10 year period, they were, you know, they they came to all of the places that I was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what kind of venues would they have been playing? Like bars, were, bars or universities? Anything? Yes, <laughs> anything. I mean, they were playing bars, universities. They were playing, you know, uh, nightclubs. They were there at that time. I mean, it's crazy to think this now, but you know, they were really still totally. They were a. Uh, they were not, you know, super well known the way that they are now, uh, and that was a big disappointment to Ra too. I think he he really felt that um, he felt that that, that uh, his the the message that he had, which was a dire message for humanity, which is uh, another aspect of you know he was prophetic. And that message he really felt was not adequately heeded, and uh, and that was a great disappointment, either by humans generally, but also by African Americans. He was very disappointed in the reception that his music and his intellectual um, uh, offerings received from um, from black folks. And uh, you can see that you can see what he wanted that to be. If you watch the great film, kind of quasi black exploitation film, "Space Is the Place," 
um, that he co-wrote and stars in where there's a great scene in it where he's uh, lecturing to black kids in a youth center. And you can kind of see him doing what he wanted to do and being and kind of acting out of what he, the kind of response that he thought he should have received at the time. And he did in some, some corners of the world, but not nearly as broadly as he thought he should have. Cause he was a, there was a messianic element to his message. Mm-hmm. Do you think today, like either culturally or artistically, do you think he's, he gets the recognition or the respect he deserves? Well, what's gratifying is that you see a little less of him being treated like a, like a crackpot. Yeah. Um, and even by people who admire him at, you know, uh, 20, 25 years ago, even people who admired him would sometimes treat him like a, like a loon. And I think it's kind of much harder to do that now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so in that sense, I think his work is being taken more seriously. Um, I still think there's a lot that we have to glean about him. I think there's a lot. He wrote a lot um, and we still have a lot of um, a lot of work to do to understand the resonance of what he was about. Um, but you know, he left us a lot to chew on and a lot to sift through in order to do that. And uh, what's, again, exciting is that we're seeing it. Um, There are new books coming out all the time about Sun Ra, about one or another aspect of what he was up to. And, And he deserves that, and he deserves a lot more than that. So it's that's good to see. So I would say, you know, there's still more to do, but it's it's on the right track. Okay. Uh, if someone has never heard Sun Ra or is, has a just a passing knowledge of his music, give me three to five albums that you would recommend that they check out. Okay, <laughs> that's a, that's good. Um, well, I would definitely um, I would spend some time with a couple of records from the early years. Um, Sun Song is a great example. Um, and uh, Supersonic Jazz is a great record. Uh, so from the Chicago years, you could do those two, and we travel the spaceways. Those are three great records from the early years. I'm particularly fond of those. I find them more or less endlessly rejuvenating. So I listen to them, and I discover new things in them constantly. Um, I think... Uh, from the middle period, from the from the New York period, I would recommend Other Planes of There um, and When Angels Speak of Love, which are both really great records. And then there's some good examples from later on. Uh, I would say Nuclear War is a great record um, because it gives you the full picture. It gives you some very strange, almost static uh, music. There are songs with him moving back and forth, singing back and forth with June Tyson um, and with other members of the band. Um, and then there's some really just straight ahead swinging big band music. And then I'm just going to 
um, go back to the classic period. And I'm going to say, if you've never heard Ra at all, you can do worse than just getting one record, which is Space is the Place. And that's a classic. The song Space is the Place is, you know, possibly his great contribution to the American songbook. Um, and um, and there's some very, very out music on it. And there's some super funny music that's been covered by all sorts of people. There's a great tune on it called Rocket Number no. 9, Take Off for the Planet Venus, and uh, it's usually called Rocket Number no. 9. And, uh, you know, that was covered in the 70s by NRBQ. Um, so the concept of covering raw, for instance, is uh, is is something that's in- intriguing um, possibility. So, yeah, so that those would be I gave you more than five. But that, that yeah, um, that'd be my little, uh, you know, there's like 250 to choose from. So. Okay, uh, tell me about the Alton Abraham Sun Ra archive and and what like what is it? Well, um, I was very fortunate to get to know Sun Ra's manager um, Alton Abraham. I wrote about Ra for Downbeat Magazine when Ra died, um, and I wrote some things about the unsettledness of the Ra estate and. Out of the blue, I got a call from this guy, Alton Abraham. Alton Abraham was Ra's manager starting um, when he was still known as uh, Herman Poole Blunt, Sonny Blunt, um, which was his earth name. And um, he was a friend, associate, and manager starting in the very early 1950s. And continuing after he left Chicago after Ra left Chicago at even into the Philadelphia period where he was, where Ra was releasing records in Philadelphia. He was also releasing records sort of in parallel in Chicago. Um, I got to know Alton after that, when he called me to tell me that he liked what I'd written, which was very gratifying. Mm-hmm. He then, uh, you know, I asked him if I could interview him and he said, sure. So we got together and I interviewed him, uh, a number of times. And at that time he started telling me some things about all of the material that he had, all of this r- really huge amount of Sun Ra related material that he had. We, we started to try to find uh, an institutional home for it at that point. And weirdly at that point, nobody wanted it. Uh, there were, you know, I approached a number of institutions and maybe it was daunting because it was a lot of stuff, but, um, nobody was really that interested in it. So then Alton died and I ended up, um, through a strange, in some ways, SST oriented, uh, uh, connection because, uh, Mike Watt actually sent out a kind of SOS because a friend of his had let him know that this stuff was out there. I found out that this material um, was being thrown away. Hmm. And so I ended up, uh, my wife and I bought the contents of Alton Abraham's house and saved it from going into dumpsters. Not all of it. Some things did go into dumpsters, but we got most of it. And then we spent a long time organizing it. We put a couple of shows together um, of original materials, original drawings for record covers and writings and things like that. Um, 
exhibitions that traveled. And then uh, we gave that material to the University of Chicago, to their, to their, um, the Regenstein special collections, the Regenstein library. And there they continue to be um, a resource for, um, for scholars, for lay people, anyone can go. One of the agreements that we had was that they, it had to be accessible. And so you can go down there, you can, you know, you can go online and look at the database and pick something out and they'll put it in a room for you and you can go take a look at it. It's a really cool thing. And it's, there are two books that have already come out that have used that as their primary, um, uh, research material. Do you have a favorite piece that you, that you picked up? Um, what I what I'll tell you what really freaked me out was seeing you know being a Sunra fan and kind of knowing these records, but knowing at the time already they were really prized mm-hmm. as some of the like mid sixties uh, Saturn records, and so <clears throat> there were records that when I first saw this material that I'd been looking for for twenty five years, just a copy of the record that I was suddenly seeing the. Um, the print plate that would print those records when they were making them by hand in their basement. And just to, there was a component of that that was so otherworldly, um, just the tactility of it mm-hmm. and the sense. So those like print plates, they were uh, linoleum plates. And the one for other planes of there is this really... Um, iconic image and uh yeah so that that material when i first saw it i i kind of couldn't believe what i was looking at yeah i mean you hear people talk about that with early punk singles right where you know somebody somebody xerox folded and stuffed this single by hand you know what i mean yeah you know i bought some singles from a friend of mine uh, probably 30 years ago and i was looking through them recently and i have a copy of the first uh meat puppets single Mm -hmm. and i opened it up and i had not realized or maybe i just didn't remember that i had a copy that has a drawing in it because the first one pre-sst has uh has uh, acid drawings right yeah they were dropping a tab and then making some uh very strange drawings yeah so that's that. Yeah, I love that kind of thing. I mean, that sort of, uh, uh, again, immediacy of that, of this thing that was connected to so intimately to the people who were making it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the that's the DIY spirit is that you're cutting all the minute, the middlemen out of of the process. Okay, I want to ask you about free improv. Your book, A Listener's Guide to Free Improvisation. What advice would you give someone who finds free jazz unlistenable? Are they listening to it wrong, or are they thinking too much? Well, I don't think the the way that I think about it is that you is that there's you don't have to listen to this music. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing. It's not like taking medicine. You know, uh, it's not going to necessarily make you a better person. It's not going to make you smarter, whatever. It's like, um, 
you should listen to it if it turns you on. But there are ways that it, especially if you're interested in the energy of punk, for instance, or of, you know, very energetic rock music, there are ways in which if you can get outside of thinking that you need a beat, for instance, if you absolutely can't do without a pulse, a regular pulse, then it's very likely you're going to have a hard time listening to this music because that's one of the things that I think is getting challenged in that music is the, is the necessity of having a pulse. Um, and the only way to do that is to kind of relax about it because mm -hmm. people get very uptight when they're trying to listen to um, music and there isn't a regular pulse. Yeah. Um, that is the, for, that for my experience, that is the biggest hurdle is just the rhythmic component. Yeah. And, uh, if you can get past that, that will open you up to be able to really just pay attention and listen. It's not particularly good music to have on in the background. Hmm. So, you know, if that's the way that you use music, it might not be for you. Um, but I listen to it and I really like listening to it on record. I also know people who only want to listen my wife, for instance, she really only wants to listen to, uh, freely improvised music in person because mm -hmm. she wants to see what people are doing. Right. She, she's interested in that, in, in, in parsing that I'm really interested in, in depriving myself of that and, um, forcing my, in a way, forcing myself to hear to hear relationships rather than see them. Um, and, and that's just like a discipline. That's a listening discipline thing. Um, so those are, you know, those are basic points for me. Like if you can, you know, give it a try. And if it seems like it's something, if it just irritates you, then don't, don't listen to it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right. I wonder if uh, SST improvise band Paper Bag are on your radar at all. Yes, but remind me who was in Paper Bag. Uh, two brothers. Was it Joe, Joe Biza? No, was he in? no, that's, uh, you're maybe thinking of October Faction. Right, yeah. okay. Paper Bag was uh, M. Siegel, um, Greg Siegel, two brothers, uh, Kenny Ryman, and George Radai were their names. Well, yeah, I know that, I know... I know the the name. I'm not sure if I have a paper bag record. It's impossible. It's possible that I do, but I don't remember. Mm. Um, no, there is a, there is a lot of crossover. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm friends with the members of um, the Tar Babies. Mm -hmm. You know, those guys um, also kind of moved into playing some improvised music. Yep. Um, and I used to see them a lot here and they're a great band. They were a great band. Um, and then universal Congress of had a fair amount of, um, that kind of, they were very interested in Ornette Coleman, especially, but, mm -hmm. um, kind of harmonic music. Yep. Uh, cruel Frederick was a band that some of those guys played in that I think did a lot of improvising as well. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a, like there's a Jack Spicer thing there too, right? Am I remembering that mm -hmm. there was like a uh, the poet Jack Spicer had something to do with maybe Cruel Frederick or with one of those bands? Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. 
your own involvement in record labels. Tell me about your connection to the Atavistic label. In uh, 1999, uh, Kurt Kellison, who was running Atavistic, and I had um, some meetings. He proposed doing something together. Um, and, um, I liked his label. So I proposed that we do a, um, initially it was, I thought of it as a single project, um, that would be looking at music that had been recorded, but never issued in German improvised music. That was kind of where it came from. I, I was, I had heard, this is the backstory for that, but I had heard that there was that some of the radio stations in Germany were discarding tapes for space reasons. So I got a Goethe Institute grant to go over and, and do a little survey. And I did that. And in the process sort of drummed up all sorts of really interesting music um, that it didn't seem that they were throwing it out, but they definitely weren't doing anything with it. Mm -hmm. So I proposed putting this thing together and then, and Kurt was completely into it, but then it seemed more logical to go back and reissue some things that had been issued but were out of print for a very long time. So the first two records we did were Peter Brotzman's Nipples, and um, which was from 1969, and uh, Joe McPhee's record Nation Time, and that was from 1970. I think it was recorded in 70, but it was issued in 72 and and they were hits i mean you know within the limited world of our experience just putting them out because atavistic was distributed through touch and go so it had rock distribution which meant that at that moment it was in everything it was in, you were in every coconuts in the country you know and tower records and everywhere and so you know we sold 10,000 copies of Na of Nation Time wow. right out of the gate, which was an insane number of no those, those records. Yeah. And uh, one of the early recordings that we issued was um, Nuclear War by by Sun Ra. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where, you know, Yola Tango heard it. I'm pretty sure and went before they covered it. I, you know, I think it... it definitely circulated Sun Ra and we sold again 10, I don't know, a lot of copies of that record. So, uh, so the unheard music series, as it was called, was a sub label of atavistic and it ran for a little bit under 10 years. And then when I started the art gallery with my friend, Jim Dempsey in 2004, we, eventually decided to pull that production you know stuff was kind of ramping down over it at Avistic because um touch and go had folded mm -hmm. and so the distribution was much more laborious so we pulled it over to ourselves made it much more of an in-house kind of production scene and then began to ramp it up from there and so corbett versus dempsey the label has been around since the about 2004 five or six and and now we're you know putting out you know upwards of 20 records a year so it's a full-on thing and we're right now doing a whole bunch of rock related mm -hmm. um re 
Um, so he just did a dreadful in the din um, record, which is completely fantastic. Featuring, some, there's some SST connections right there. Yeah, yeah. and it's Mission of Burma is the backing band mm -hmm. on that record. We're doing four uh, dreadful in the din uh, records. Wow. Um, and, and, um, and then I'm, I'm, you know, continue to be super interested in, uh, music that, that fell by the wayside from the 1970s and eighties in the British context, British post-punk context. And so there's a label called Ron Johnson records that, um, the X actually made two records for them. And, um, but they had a, a, a really interesting stable of um, bands, Big Flame, um, Stump, Splat, um, and Jackdaw with Crowbar, mm -hmm. all of these um, really incredible bands. So we're doing reissues of a number of those bands, um, issues of some material that's never been out and then stuff that's um, been out of print since the... Uh, mid 80s mm -hmm. um so you know it's exciting because we get to really explore it we get to explore whatever we want yeah which is what you know that's the that's the fun part of it is to be able to like really just dive into any kind of music we want to yeah uh tell me a little bit about the gallery that you that you and jim have and and some of the events that you've held there yeah, the, the gallery, is, it's a contemporary art gallery. Um, um, we've been around since 2004. It's a, it's great. I mean, we, we've, <laughs> we, it's a little bit like a cultural center in a way. It's a commercial gallery, but we have a lot of different, like we have a, a giant record collection there and we have archives, music archives there. Um, and we do live performances, um, musical performances there on a relatively regular basis, meaning once every five weeks or so we have something. And uh, we've done all sorts of things. I mean, most recently, you know, we had um, a show with Moki Cherry, uh, Moki Cherry's Tapestries, um, and she was uh, married to and um, uh, partners, musical and and artistic partners with Don Cherry, the great trumpet player. And um, during that, we had Ken Vandermark and Honey Drake play music of Don Cherry. So we do, you know, all sorts of things. We have a performance coming up with the great sound poet, um, Yacht Blanc, um, who's going to do Kurt Schitters's or Sonata. And... Um, and we're going to have solo improvised bagpipe performance coming up soon um, as well. So, and we had Isaiah Collier, great young tenor player, play um, a, his first solo concert at the gallery a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we continue to do those things. They tend to be quite small, solo usually, or maybe duets. Um, and sometimes they turn into records. So we have a Joe McPhee and Tamika Reed the great cellist who uh, was awarded a MacArthur fellow uh, just now. Um, she, those two played together Juneteenth on Juneteenth last year in 2021. And that record is just about to come out uh, right of that con. So what about writing John? Are you, are, have you, do you have any uh, books in the queue? You know, 
I, I, I had a little spurt of writing books. Uh, I had, it had been a long time since I published a, a book length uh, project. Um, and starting in, I think 2016, I think I went four year, five years and four books, which was a little bit crazy with everything else I was doing. So I've taken a bit of a break since 2019, but I have a couple of projects that I'm working on. Um, I, there, I did not know that there was a book being written about Albert Eiler. Um, but there's a book just about to hit the stands about Eiler, which I'm really excited to read. Um, I have a project that I was working on about the last days of Eiler's life. And I'll be curious to see whether it's redundant now, um, because I'm curious how this writer has uh, done that. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book about the seventies music in the 1970s. And the logical thing when I finished it was to do a book about music in the 1980s. I got about halfway through it. Um, and then put it down for a while. So I've got about half of a book about the 80s written. And I think I'll go back and probably pick that up again um, uh, relatively soon. I'm, uh, I have an editor who's really excited about kind of doing that project. So um, it'll have a, I think it'll have a, tentatively it has a, um, a, a Jad Fair title. Yeah. Uh, Sing No Evil uh, would title and uh, the subtitle would be an apology for 80s music because <laughs> there was a lot to apologize for <laughs> in the night yeah it's that's true where can people go to learn more about you and your you know everything you're up to um uh i have a website uh it's johnccorbett.com um and then and it's uh, periodically updated uh, and then the website for the gallery is a good place to see what kind of stuff uh, we're working on. And that's just, uh, uh, Corbett versus Dempsey.com. And uh, yeah. Right on John. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was really great fun. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Wow. So cool to hear from John. I would say that I have, always had an appreciation for Sun Ra and I definitely have listened to, I, I have a few of his records. Um, John definitely gave me a few more to dig into, but it's just clear how much of a lightweight I am when it comes to oh, Sun Ra. Yeah. And there is just so much more to dig into and uh, just an impressive, impressive figure and people, any Sun Ra fan must absolutely must read that archeological dig essay by john in the back of vinyl freak it's just insane yeah yeah i mean i have to confess i own and i have a fair amount of you know jazz and some free jazz and and avant-garde records but you know i own exactly one sun raw release it's the gilles peterson presents two cd comp to those of earth and other worlds i mean you see the reissues around a lot yeah. You know, it's pretty easy to find Sun Ra stuff, but there, there's just so many <laughs> releases that it, it, you know, it's daunting. So have you heard, have you ever heard the Batman record? No, never. 
Oh, you got to you got to listen to that one. Okay. Put that on your John didn't mention that. Put that one on your list. Okay. Yeah, well it was great to get some recommends from John. I did check out some of the these records that he he recommended and and liked them. That that comp that I have, it focuses a little too heavily on the early kind of doo-wop influenced era, which doesn't grab me like the you know some of the the stuff from the 60s and 70s does, you know. So, yeah, I was checking out some of John's recommends this week and you know, I have some work to do, and but I'll definitely take your recommendation there as well. Batman record, do it. Yep. He mentions interviewing Sun Ra. If you go onto John's website, uh, which is johncorbett.info, you can see tons of articles he's written, some great ones on Sun Ra. I would especially recommend his piece from Design Observer, circa 2007, entitled Sun Ra, Street Priest and Father of DIY Jazz. That's a good one. True. Uh, that University of Chicago Alton Abraham collection, you can find with a Google search a 96-page PDF that lists the contents, and <laughs> it it's insane. Yeah. Yep. John is also a musician. He has this uh, crazy uh, record from 1999 called John Corbett and Heavy Friends, and it's called I'm Sick About My Hat. That's the name of the record. David Grubbs is on it, a Swedish sax maniac, Mats Gustafsson, who he frequently collaborates with. Lots of like cut-up samples. It's just a super wild album. I'm no expert on Derek Bailey, but I I think you can definitely hear his influence on John's guitar playing on that record. Mm. We've talked about some of the stuff before on his Unheard Music series on atavistic, uh, like Last Exit and Peter Brotzman. Yep. There's so much more there. They've released at least 70 albums in that series. Uh, his newer label, Corbett versus Dempsey, that he and Jim Dempsey run in conjunction with their gallery, has over 100-plus releases to its name. Wow. wow. Uh, I spent a night just checking stuff out. There's, there's so much there. I'll, I know I'll be talking about some of this stuff down the line as you know, in further spiels as I, as I get time to dive further. Definitely want to hear that Dreadfool in the Din recording that they released this year. It's called Songs in Heat 1982. I believe it's the complete sessions from their debut single along with a live set from 82 with the uh, Mission of Burma backing them up. Oh yeah, must get that. Yeah. Uh, And apparently three more Dreadful in the Din releases coming out. Wow. Yeah. We, We talked about Dreadful for sure on our Volcano Suns episode. Pretty sure I asked Peter Prescott about about that band. Yep. Oh yeah, we went into it in depth there. Yeah. I'll be honest, Ryan, like I've said with some of our other guests, John is just one of those dudes that just overwhelmed me. Yeah. Like He has in his hands in so many pies, you kind of don't know where to begin. Like, I, I just want to read all of his books and listen to all of the records that are, <laughs> that are in his books. Yeah. Well, you'd need to go on a, uh, a sabbatical for a year yeah. and, and do that. I want to go to Chicago and, and hang out at the, the gallery. Yeah. Like, can we route the through Chicago on the Mojack windup? Yeah, man. Like go record shopping with John? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I watched that Space is the Place documentary this week. That's Sun Ra's 1974 science fiction film. I've never seen it before. The plot is pretty tough to follow. <laughs> If you read up on it, there are some interpretations, you know, on the on the statements he was trying to make in the film that do make sense once you've seen it. 
there's a lot of outer space stuff, including a totally wild scene where his spaceship first lands on Earth and this throng of reporters, you know, are, are gathering around. Of course, there's some totally unhinged live performances in there. It's definitely worth an hour and a half of your time if, if you've never seen it. Uh, John's books I've managed to source in the last month since you spieled about him, um, the Vinyl Freak book. Um, to me, just thumbing through it, I haven't had a chance to, to read it. Uh, it's almost like that Andrew Earle's Gimme Indie Rock book that we we always talk about, except it's mainly obscure free jazz and avant-garde. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Andrew Earle's, his book is like the top 500, right? Yeah. John's book is a similar type of list, but it's really just noting how there are these obscure records that had never been re-released. Yeah. Um, and so, and his labels did some of the work in between original publishing of those articles. And then when he collected them for the book. Yeah. I mean, it's similar in the sense that it's basically, it's almost a collection of record reviews. Total. Oh, it totally is. It is 100% with great, photos too when you look at those images and then you read the article and then you go and listen to a song it blows your mind yeah uh his 2016 book on university of chicago chicago press called a listener's guide to free improvisation it's just as advertised it's like the size of one of these 33 and a third books it's just small almost like a pocket guide Mm. it has a checklist in the back of major living free improvisers, including Ned Rothenberg of uh, Semantics. Yeah, yeah. Henry Kaiser, Fred Frith, Thurston Moore, tons more in there. It has a chapter titled Kindling 20 Starter Records for Your Improvised Music Collection. So that's pretty handy. Whoa, yeah. Uh, And what I also really appreciate about John is, you know, he's he's not at all pretentious about any of this. Like here, here's an example from the book. It's called, it's a chapter called six things improvised music records are good for <laughs> one clearing a dance party Two, attentive listening three headphones mm. four analyzing passages via repetition five, not being distracted by facial expressions. Six, impressing other record collectors. <laughs> I did find his comments about how that type of music, you know, what makes it impenetrable for some people is the lack of a rhythm, yeah. a la- lack of a pulse. Yeah. I totally get that because, I mean, I do have some free jazz, but I would say most of the free jazz I have is probably the most middle of the road stuff. Yeah. I don't, I don't really have like any, any way out there stuff. I dip my toe into free jazz or improvisational music. Rarely. Yeah. I will, I will totally admit that when I do, I enjoy it, but it's, it's only for a moment, like one record every few months. And then I kind of move on. It's not been something that, like I go back to as like a comfort zone, you know, because so much of the music that I am drawn to is really groovy stuff. Like, like a lot of that dancey post-punk, like a lot of that, uh, really grindy Chicago noise rock, you know, 
um, funk. I mean, I know that that's what I, what I like. That's what I need. That's my therapy, you know? So it's, I think John's onto something when he says like, that's what really makes it difficult for people to get into. But I will also admit like, even when I play like the most straight ahead jazz by my house and my dad's here, yeah, he's like, oh, that just sounds like a bunch of random notes. So just, <laughs> just imagine someone like that listening to free jazz. Oh yeah. Forget it. Yeah, Forget it. Right. It yeah. sounds like absolute chaos. Yeah. Uh, one more book I'll mention real quick that I, that I found Ryan of his, it's called micro groove forays into other music, 2015 Duke university press. Uh, what I would say just from thumbing through it again, cause I haven't had time to read it and I would probably take me a year to read this because what vinyl freak is to gimme indie rock micro groove is to rock in the pop narcotic. Whoa. This is not a light breezy read. Uh, it's like an encyclopedia. If you're looking for a super in-depth study of improvised music, free jazz, uh, and all points in between, this is the book for you. It is definitely an intense book. Let's get into history lesson part two here, Ryan. History lesson part two. This will be a short one, Ryan. Um, as mentioned, we've heard two of these three songs before on Sonic Temple. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll start us off with some Spaceman on this EP, okay? From the SST catalog. Brian Ritchie, Sun Ra, Man from Outer Space. Three songs on this EP. A Commendation, A Cover, A Criticism. Richie's tribute to Sun Ra, his rendition of Phil Oak's Parade, and a Christmas song with a twist, Dry. SST 227. Now, it lists here a 12-inch 45, a, ca so. a casingle, and it actually says casingle in here. C-A-S-S-N-G-L. <laughs> only, only one vowel in casingle. And then it says three inch CD, and that's what I've got my three inch CD. Yeah, I don't think twelve inch EP. They may have planned for that and changed their mind. Didn't come out. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Okay. Well, probably a good thing because, like, I don't know, man. Well, we'll get to it when we go through the tracks here. Um, so it starts out with the title track, Sunra, <laughs> Man from Outer Space. <laughs> Uh, credited to Brian and Peter Belstrieri. Uh, again, if you haven't heard our interview with Peter, it's excellent. I, I never listen back to the interviews, but I know for sure he talks about the importance of Sun Ra to him, Brian, and, and everyone in their circle of friends. Um, in fact, uh, at one point, we Peter and I had talked about him coming on for this episode just solely to talk about, about Sun Ra. Mm. Uh, I know he also talks about, you know, kind of the, the impetus behind writing this song in the episode. It's a great track. Catchy as hell. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there are some musical nods to Sun Ra in there. Yes. You can't help but think some of the outro, like the sax lines, the marimba, the guitar solos, those have got to be nods, hey? Yeah. Uh, the next one is Parade. This is the EP exclusive track. It's a cover written by uh, folk singers Phil Oakes and Bob Gibson. We recently talked about Phil Oakes in the Kirk Kelly episode, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the opening track on Phil's debut album, 1964's All the News that That's Fit to Sing. And it's actually called One More Parade. That's the actual name of the song. 
Bob Gibson, the, the co-writer, was a, a key figure in the folk revival in the 60s. Not really sure how they came to collaborate on this, but I'm, you know, I'm sure they crossed paths a lot or performed at the same festivals and coffee houses. They might be giants. I actually do a, an excellent cover of this, um, which if you, if you listen to Brian's version, you can totally hear they might be giants doing it. It's more giancy for sure. Yeah, it, it's got that, it's almost got that Oompa Loompa type of beat to well, it. Yeah, like a real kind of marching, almost like gypsy-esque. Yeah. But yeah, Oompa Loompa. We'll go with Oompa Loompa. <laughs> but it, it's, I mean, it's it's kind of a a somber song, you know, in, yeah. in or the topic anyways, about the futility of war, futility of sending people to war and how it deprives them of their identity. And it's all good. You just need to have a parade. Yeah, the glorification of war is what I put. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's a cool version, uh, but to me, it doesn't make this release crucial or anything like that. But it is the reason this release exists. Yeah. You must admit. Well, uh, like I said last week on the <laughs> on the Black Flag episode, SST rarely left, you know, never wasted an opportunity with, with unreleased tracks. Yeah. I wonder what Brian was uh, playing, you know, the, uh, the intro lick. It's either his acoustic bass with an octave or it sounds like an eight string bass. Can't tell. Maybe a baritone guitar. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. But it, it sounds like there's an octave going on in the strings. And then the last track also off the Sonic Temple album, Christian for one day written by Brian. <laughs> this is the one I'm sure we mentioned this in, in the episode, that opening line. Oof. Have you ever seen a statue? It's cock and balls cut off. Yeesh. The, the lyrics are really quite quite something on this song. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a short one, though, two minutes long. Yeah, definitely uh, taking a cut at uh, religion, the Christian religion in particular, about how, you know, can do whatever the hell you want, but you're just going to be good on Christmas Day. Yeah. The cover art is, you know, a black and white version of the Sonic Temple cover, um, yeah. where you can... Slightly different. With the bricks? Well, no, uh, like the positioning of the people in the photo, slightly different. Oh, are they, it's a different photo, you mean? Different photo, but oh. it's the same photo session. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can definitely see their appreciation for Sun Ra, you know, with their clothes. They look like they're straight off the, the orchestra. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> robes, their... robes and stuff. Robes, fezes, Cuban yeah. heels. Yeah. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so which ones have we chosen before? Any of these? No, no. Uh, what song was it? It's a really kick-ass song, actually, that we picked off of... Um, Sonic Temple? Off of Sonic Temple. Hold on, I gotta look it up. I looked it up to make sure it wasn't wasn't any of these and it's it's a oh you know i don't have to look it up i just remembered it's um because remember peter was singing it let's drink some wine before. oh yeah <laughs> that is a good song it's awesome yeah 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 i will i listened to the record once this week to kind of get me ready for listening to the ep and then i listened to this ep like you know two dozen times and it's i don't know got a got a new appreciation for phil oaks though I would okay. say, because I went back and listened to that record for the first time ever. I've never listened to 
all the news that's fit to sing. And I didn't even do that after the Kirk Kelly episode. Yeah, I listened to, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I did listen to his version of Parade a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for me, we got to go with the title track, man. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best song. As, yeah. as biting as Christian for a Day is and as good as Parade is, Sun Ra is the best track. Yeah. Hey, thanks to John. Really enjoyed our, our chat and, you know, diving into, into his work. Yeah. D- dipping my toe into it, really. Like, I haven't even started to dive into it. Not even. Yeah. Just like one pinky toe nail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope he, you know, I hope he keeps writing. He, he talked about that, that book he's talking, he, you know, or I think he said the, oh, it's the, written the Al- already. The, the Albert Eiler one? No, no. The one he's going to write about the 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, man, we're going back to a fave of ours for sure. It's SST 228, the Bad Brains Spirit Electricity release. Right on, and we may or may not have a guest next week. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.